Curiosity may have killed the cat, but it's great for humans. We've got that. We've got mental representation and listener mailbag on this episode of the Learning Geeks podcast. All right, gentlemen, let's dive in. Welcome back to the Learning Geeks podcast. This is episode four. It's our fourth episode. It's our third one that we've done public. Hopefully someday people will wonder what was on that mysterious first episode. We're not going to share. We're not going to share. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it's all good. So uh, this is Bob Girard from Santa Monica, California, joined by my friends who are stuck in Illinois, uh, Jake Gittleson and Dana Cock. It's a beautiful day here today. We've got I was great say, it's weather perfect in, up. in St. Charles. Yeah. yeah, we're at about 68 degrees, and I am, uh, I'm i going to go hit the beach after this. Well, and, good for uh, you. Don't hurt your go hand. go for a run. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> hey, let's dive in. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, a new segment, Listener Mailbag. So we've been getting feedback back from you, and um, I have a specific request. This comes from Miss Mabel G. Applethorpe of uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Hey, not really. But, I was going to oh. say, is that real? <laughs> no, no, no. no. Uh, but we did get feedback that, you know, maybe our podcasts are going a little too long. So I think in our defense, people are liking what we're saying, but we're also hearing that uh, we would like them to be a little a little bit more bite-sized. So, would you hurry it up, Bob? Then yeah, exactly. So I'm going to get bit, done with yeah, this yeah. intro. All right. Um, so we're going to start doing that. So we're going to have less topics, make our show a little bit more efficient. And so with that, uh, Dana, I'm going to turn it over to you. I know you want to talk about mental representations. Not sure what you mean by that. So why don't you just dive into it? I will. Thanks. And this is in part picking up off of something that Jake mentioned on our last podcast, where we had Robert Poole from uh, a co-author of the book, Peak, talk to us, uh, talk to our internal team. Um, but let me start with a story, and, and that'll set a little bit of context. Uh, and, and the story took place, uh, you, both, you both have kids, and we learn a lot from our kids. So this took place several years ago when my youngest daughter, Rebecca, was nine. She had been with her mom and her two older sisters the day before this conversation took place. And the four of them, what they'd been doing is they had been helping uh, set up booths at a scrapbooking show over at Pheasant Run, which is a local convention center. And, uh, you know, there weren't, there were not people in there. There were no shoppers. They were just setting up. So they were hanging things up on hooks and getting the signs up, et cetera. So, um, Julie and and Rebecca and McKinsey and Kristen would all do that periodically to get some fun money. Well, there were about 80 vendors in all, and the convention was full, right? There were booths all over the place, but the booths all were similar, right? They had a black curtain. They were in nice, even rows, uh, kind of. Uh, just as you would envision, very big, very similar uh, in pattern. So Rebecca did that. And then the day after the setup, uh, she and I went over to visit. Uh, and now the others were all working in booths. She was too young to work in a booth with customers there. And um, as we walked into the convention center, I said, now, Rebecca, are you going to be able to find where everybody is? She said, I know exactly where they are. And I said, well, how do you know that? Do you have a map in your head? She goes, yep, I have a really good map in my head. 
And so she just took me by the hand and she weaved in and around several booths and walked me exactly to where the, her two sisters were working. And so we chatted with them a little bit. And then I said, well, where's your mom? And she said, oh, come this way. And all along the route, she would say things like, well, yesterday I helped at this booth and that lady has really cool markers. And I helped at this booth and that guy, he's selling sparkly powder that's really pretty. Mom worked with him for a long time. And so she had the whole place mapped out in her head and the map contained an amazing amount of detail. Hmm. It contained things like the walking path, the product lines, how hooks were attached to the displays and all those other things. So as, as we left the convention center, she looked at me, she said, daddy, do you have a map in your head now too? I really like that story because to me, it illustrates how we create these mental models or mental representations of things. In that case, it was, a, you know, it was largely geographic, but it also had a lot of rich detail. And she didn't send out, set out to intentionally uh, create this map in her head, but she walked out with, uh, with knowledge and content that she could do something with. She could retrace the, the route. She could you know, think about the sparkly powder and all of the other adventures that she had the day before. So uh, when we had Robert Poole in, you know, one of the comments that he made was that he said this, he said, the thing about mental representations, the things that they all have in common is that they make it possible to process large amounts of information quickly, despite the limitations of short-term memory. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to start off with that story and then have a little discussion about mental representations and as learning designers, some things that we might be able to, to do to facilitate mental representations uh, and, and create them in people's heads. So what are your reactions? So to me, to, uh, to me, the, uh, I remember when Robert said a lot about visualizations in your head, right? Um, and the mapping is always interesting because I think some people struggle with trying to, uh, think of what, where to go directionally. Right? So it's, uh, and that could be a skill in itself just to again, visualize what that room looked like for your daughter. Right. Yeah. Um, and what, so I've given this more thought too. So when I've, when I, when I try to learn something new or looking to improve my expertise or performance in a particular area, uh, the one thing that I try to do is just visualize those various inputs. So again, this isn't a map, right? But I sometimes think of it as a map in my head. Um, so that could be like a conversation I had, something I read, observations, you know, all those things, types of things. Um, and what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take all those inputs and to see how it could help me improve upon something. So what I think is weird about it, and I really didn't think too much about it until I started learning more about mental representations, is that if I really focus on what I'm going through um, during that some type of learning process or trying to solve some type of problem, I can actually visualize those, those chunks or those images. Mm -hmm. And I can start to see the connections to one another. I mean, I mean, of course, I'm not hitting all of them because it's happening super fast and sometimes without even noticing. But if I really try to imagine it, I can almost see those chunks and like, oh, you know what? I remember that. I remember this and make those come together. So from Rebecca's side, it's pretty interesting uh, too, how she was able to do that, right? Uh, you know, think about the map itself and where things were and make the connections and know exactly where to go. Mm -hmm. 
in some ways, the, you know, the sparkly powder was a, a, a marker of sorts, right? And the 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 different routes all created uh, part of that intricacy of the map. Sorry, Bob, go ahead. There's a really good episode of, I believe it was Sherlock, wasn't it? Where it's all around mental palaces. Hmm. I think that's the name, like a memory palace. And that's a very specific technique, right? Of, of remembering images and kind of imagining yourself in a physical space where you can go from item to item. And those items are essentially mnemonic devices to help you recall something. And yeah. I, I would love to do that. I remember once taking a, um, I think my wife ordered it uh, when she was awake, taking care of our kids at two or three in the morning off of an infomercial. But it was a, it was a course on how to improve your memory. And, you know, that was the first technique that they taught was coming up with the metaphors and the analogies to create your own mnemonic devices and help you remember. And, um, you know, I, I found that to be very useful. I know this probably comes from my background as a technical writer too. I feel like I don't really understand a concept unless I have created a metaphor for it. You know, that's kind of the signal to me that like, Mm -hmm. yes, I get this if I can come up with a metaphor or analogy. So, so that's really cool. Now, the one thing that was fascinating about your story for me too, Dana, was that your daughter seemed to be able to do that without having intention around it. Right. Right. And, That doesn't match my experience, right? Like I find I can blithely go through life and not be mindful (laughs) about what's happening and forget everything. But if I just kind of turn the switch and say, hey, I want to, for example, I want to remember where I'm going. I'm going to a new place. I don't want to just rely on Google Maps. I want to remember where I'm going. Or, Or when I meet a whole bunch of people, if I kind of turn that switch going into it and say, I'm going to intentionally remember their names, I can do it. But if I forget to mentally turn that switch, I don't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it makes me think about the role of mindfulness and just being aware of your own process to yeah. uh, help and make you a better learner, essentially. Well, let me let me do a quick quote that, uh, and this is from the book Peak, uh, that I think just puts a nice little ribbon on what you just said, Bob. It says, much of deliberate practice involves developing ever more efficient mental representations that you can use in whatever activity you're practicing. So, you know, in your case, the, the idea of the intention, I'm going to memorize the names of the people who are in the room, or uh, I'm going to come up with an analogy or a metaphor. Those are all very deliberate things. And so I think as learning designers, we can be thinking about what are the ways that we can help people to uh, do, do that deliberate practice in order to create mental representations. All right. So let me do one other thing, and then we'll toss it to Jake for a little bit. Um, but you, part of what we talked about was the, the kind of a geographic mental representation. We can relate to maps like this. Um, when I was at Northwestern uh, University, we used the word script, which in my head is very similar to mental representations. It's just a different form. This one is more of a process script. Um, and, and the example that uh, we used to use was called the restaurant script. And it went something like this, right? In the early 1900s, if you went into a restaurant in the United States, your experience was something like you walk into a restaurant, a host or hostess greets you. You are seated at an open table. The waiter or waitress comes by and gives you a menu, offers to bring you a drink. You look at a menu, you make a decision. The waiter returns with your drink. The waiter asks what you want. You place the order, you wait, you eat, you get the bill, you add a tip to the bill for excellent service. You pay the bill, you leave the table with the dirty, dirty dishes and all, and you leave the restaurant. 
right? I mean, very similar to what you would experience in many restaurants today. But then what happened is in 1920-ish or so, when fast food restaurants started becoming a thing, I think the A&W restaurant in the States was one of the first ones, things changed a bit. You walked into the restaurant, no one greeted you. You weren't seated by a host. You looked at a menu that was posted on a wall. You'd mm. order your food while standing. You'd pay for the food before you eat it, <laughs> right? Um, you get the food and you'd find your own place to sit. You'd eat the food, you walk out, but you throw out your own trash. Then you leave the restaurant. So it mixed things up. The interesting thing is that that restaurant script continues to evolve, right? As new, uh, there's new innovations in restaurants. But the thing is, you can take that first script and it's fairly easy to adapt to the new script. Mm. And as you practice more and more, and as you get more in, uh, diverse experience, your ability to navigate in a restaurant becomes um, you know, more efficient, more effective. So I wanted to toss that out there just as another way of thinking about these mental models. Sometimes they're you know, geographic, sometimes they're process. Uh, sometimes you look at a picture to determine what the quality is, right? And you have a mental model to determine, is this a picture worth keeping or is this one I should uh, toss away and then retake because I need to frame it differently or whatever. But so we have a, a variety of mental models. Learning designers would do good to think about what are the mental representations that will help this person to learn the particular subject and then build some deliberate practice around that. So what's interesting about that last question, because that's that's in my mind, is that how do we help someone easily learn someone else's uh, mental representation? So, you know, typically in our field, we grab a subject matter expert, mm -hmm. yeah, usually to grab content. But, you know, reading Peak again and hearing Robert Poole talk, a lot of it is about the teacher themselves. And then what can I learn to know what good looks like? So what I, what I think is interesting about all of this is that, the, re the reality is that you can't just tell someone that this is what I do or this is what I think of in my head. Because um, I think he would really like literally have to download your thoughts and plug them into someone else's. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so what I was thinking about, it's kind of like Neo from the Matrix. You know, when Morpheus is installing all those crazy skills in Neo's brain, he wakes up like super energized and he says, I know Kung Fu. I know um, Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean... You know, I mean, we can't do that, right? That'd be awesome, but um, but I but I but but I think it'd be interesting to learn what people are doing. Yeah, I mean, I can learn that fast, but I think it's it's interesting to break it down and hear how people think of a situation. One thing that's common about both of the examples I I shared is that they are experiential, right? Which I think is a lesson in itself. To the degree that we can create experiences as compared to lectures, we're going to be more efficient in our ability to teach. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys, um, well, and, and again, I'm going to reference what Robert said again, and he shared a story about, he, he, uh, he asked a race car driver, he said, what are you, what are you thinking when you go through this track, a specific track? And he says, give me every single detail. And his detail was not just, I'm going around and I yeah. shift gears and I go speed up here. I mean, it was incredibly detailed with all of these visualizations of what a corner looks like, what this looks like. And what this it feels like, I right? I feel the G-force exactly. when I'm going around a corner. Yeah. So so I think what, what I think the, the learning point out of this for us is that we can learn a ton by asking different questions to SMEs rather than, or, you know, the experts, 
rather than just grabbing the the easy stuff like the knowledge we can really help figure out what good looks like well and imagine imagine if like with rebecca and i imagine if i would have said sat down before we went in and had a little map of the thing right and i said now here's where your sisters are and here's this and that i mean that would that would just not do it right it would be very different than the experience of actually working there and working way around and so so yeah. that's what I want to share. My last thought on this. Yeah. Go ahead, Bob. Yeah, because I like to have the last word. I know, um, of course. And the first <laughs> word. <laughs> Never going to transition. No. Uh, that too. Um, I also think it's kind of a cautionary tale too, in that as learning designers, if what we are teaching people really kind of bucks up against their existing mental model, hmm. right? How, how much harder it is to make that shift. Um, mm mm-hmm. But, but that said, once it happens, right, like once you have that aha experience that the world is different than what my original mental model said, it sticks even longer. Yeah, totally agree. So yeah. like, you know, how, how can we create that type of experience where it's like, let's build up a mental model and then let's break it a little bit. Um, really interesting to think about. Um, yeah. It's a fun, fun topic. Great. Yeah. yeah. Fun topic. Yeah. And all about making better learners. Jake, that's kind of where you were headed, right, for today? Kind of, yeah. It's uh, okay. a little Let, bit. Let's, li- redo yeah, that. I, let's redo that transition then. No, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> no hey, need. Jake, what's no up? Need. Okay. So, no, <laughs> so one of the things I want to bring up, because I think it's something that's super relevant to the three of us as of uh, recently, but, and I'm sure many of our listeners are going to get in this too, but um. We begin in a series of questions, um, not all asked at once, right? But they fit a common theme. And, and here are the questions. So how do you build a habit of learning? How can people be more innovative? And how do we build creativity? So I know in past episodes, we talked a lot about innovation and creativity. Um, so I think it's kind of worth continuing the dialogue again. Um, but yeah, early in this week, the three of us were on a call to answer similar questions. And we all uh, seem to agree that it's critical to ask questions or to be constantly curious. So for for me, it's, it, you know, what I like to do, again, thinking about our kids, I like to think of my five-year-old who, uh, or soon to be five-year-old, I should say, um, and how it's so important for her to just ask, why? Why, why daddy? Um, why do we need to clean up the room? Or why do we have windmills? Or why do cats use a litter box and not go outside? Um, and then do, do you give the Calvin and Hobbes dad answers where you're no. deliberately misleading her? <laughs> you know, that, that last question, though, that's a serious question. And I am been kind of wondering why they go inside and not go outside. But that's another topic. Uh, <laughs> but but anyway, what's what's interesting is that when when you hear that, when you hear about the kids, uh, you hear so many people, the adults, right, talk about ah, to be a kid again, right? Look at their creativity. They're such a, like a sponge or how did they come up with that? You know, they're always thinking kids are different, but we make it seem like adult life is just awful. Um, but you know, from being a father and what I'm learning and really opening my eyes even more than before is just the importance of being curious and asking those questions and constantly scanning, you know, what's around you, getting various perspectives finding something that's relevant and makes you curious um, and then eventually engages you to feed that curiosity, um, which eventually you go deeper. You make connections, you you build those mental representations, you share the your curiosity, 
uh, you know, the loop just goes round and round. So, so going back to those, those, those three questions, how do we build a habit of learning? How can people be more innovative? How do we build creativity? So to me, I just, I, I strongly believe it starts with always being curious, feeding your curiosity and then sharing your curiosity. And again, thinking about it as a loop. So I wanted to throw that out there. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Well, I'll make a connection back to what I was talking about earlier, just to validate that my transition to your topic was good and we don't have to edit it out. Um, I think curiosity also ties to openness, right? So do I walk through life thinking I know all the answers or, hey, I'm, you know, I'm of a certain age. I've kind of got the world all figured out. Or do I walk through life thinking I'm open and I'm open not only to learning new things, but to the proposition that the things that I hold to be true, that might be different, right? I, I might be wrong or the truth might be a little bit different from what I think right now. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's just a a slightly different tweak on the idea of curiosity um, that would help you be a better learner. I like that because because that's you're even thinking differently about what you currently believe. Right. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And I I remember getting that. I don't remember Dan was in the room at this time. Um, We were uh, listening to um, Sanjay Sharma from MIT. And when somebody asked a question is. How, what's the difference between what how kids learn versus adults learn? And one of the things he said is that, well, adults just have more schemas. We have way more, mm-hmm. uh, we understand what how the world works. I think we know how this works or that works or certain beliefs. And it's really, really hard for us to break that. And then for, for you, what you're saying, Bob, is just have that openness to maybe make new ones or change an existing one. And with kids, that's why they're like a sponge is because they haven't built enough yet. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I totally agree. I think that being curious as well as just being open to eventually change something, which again may lead to, Ooh, okay. Why is this the, why is this the case? Or why do I believe this way? Or why do I think this way? I think that's even better. Yeah. It's kind of the Zen, the Zen concept of like beginner's mind. Right. Right. And you know, when, when my family all studied Taekwondo and we got our black belts and, you know, after the celebration of getting your black belt, first day back in the dojong grandmaster cho is like okay you're all white belts again and and we went through the entire curriculum again from the beginning but with the perspective of black belt learning it completely differently with a different attitude and a different perspective part of what comes to my mind is and this could be a separate topic too is the role that forgetting plays in the learning process mm. and you know i think mm-hmm. openness is certainly part of it but i also think there's an element of forgetting that uh, that's crucial to um, to creating the correct mental models, right? Because sometimes we hang on to those mental models that are inaccurate. We're just not willing to forget them because we love them so much. <laughs> um, Jake, just real quick, one thing that came to mind is the research from uh, some of the research we did when we did the extreme learner research, where we interviewed several people who were really, really out there on learning. And I remember one of the comments from one of our extreme learners was that uh, he, he told me, he said, I can't let a thing go until I understand it at a very fundamental level. He said, what I do is I start with a broad curiosity. And when something gets my interest, I have to dig down deep 
until I really, really understand it at this foundational level. And he said, then I can come up for air and I can look for something else that I'm curious about. And then I go deep again. And so I repeat the cycle. And what that does is it creates those mental models that, um, that m- many of us can't have because those mental models start to connect at that deep level. And he starts to see these uh, intricate connections between things that, the, that us normal learners wouldn't necessarily see. So I think that right. that's kind of an interesting angle too, to curiosity. Well, I think what's also interesting about that too, right? Just being curious, not just of what you're doing in the context of your work, but I know the three of us, especially, we always talk about what we're experiencing outside of work or like with our family or with some random article or some random tech gadget that just came out is that we often think about how can that apply to us or or how can this experience that I just had playing this video game apply to maybe the learning context? I was going to say, tying some of those concepts together, that that's a deliberate practice that we have, right? I mean, the three of us and a few others from our team, we deliberately share those things because we know that as we share them, they're going to be expanded in our own minds. Right. And then, you know, again, to link to what we were talking about earlier, mental representations, is that we're building those visualizations in our head of what this experience was like and this experience is like. And then again, making connections to eventually, uh, you know, something new, something innovative. Right. And then that's why I think it links to innovation and uh, creativity is because having that openness, you're always using way different things and then building upon it. You know, innovation isn't just creating something brand new. Sometimes it's just building upon something else. It's upcycling. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) It's different than unicycling. Exactly. (laughs) Or something. (laughs) Which I have not tried yet. No, me either. Me either. But I will tell you you guys as we close, um, I've had severe FOMO over the last couple of weeks because I haven't read Peak yet. But it is, I, I did buy it. It's in my Kindle. And it's been open. It's at the top of my queue. So. Chapter four. Zoom in on chapter four. The whole thing's good, but four, yeah. is, that four right? is good. Yeah, four is mental representations. Well, you know, I'll, I'll be bold and say I find with a lot of business books that if you read the first and the last chapter and then pick a random chapter in the middle, you usually get the bulk of it. <laughs> Agreed. Probably, so, you know, that's that's usually the case. I, I think with a lot of these <laughs> books, they, they and this one included, there's so many stories and after a while, you're like, all right, okay, I get it. <laughs> you can figure it out. So, so guys, if we ever write, if we ever write a book, let's just write the first, the last chapter, and then some random chapter in the middle. It'll be thin book, but everybody will get it fast. Everybody will get it, right? We'll shoot and for speaking, seventy-five pages. There you go. And speaking of thin, we've made this a thinner podcast because I think we're wrapping up and we're below thirty minutes. Cool. Yep. So thanks for listening. So if you like it this way, yeah. If you like it this way, let us know. Uh, Otherwise, we'll be back soon. Um, I think we're going to try something even differenter next time, but we'll leave that as a surprise. So on behalf of Jake Gittleson and Dana Koch and myself, Bob Gerard, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Learning Geeks podcast. Take care. Thanks, everybody.